ABC Listen. Podcasts, radio, news, music and more. The technological advances of the 20th century gave us so many things. Antibiotics, spaceflight and, some would argue just as importantly, extruded, puffed and deep-fried corn dusted in fluoro-orange powder and lots of salt. For better or worse, ultra-processed foods are the backbone of many people's diets. But much like their effect on our cholesterol, blood pressure and waistlines, the evidence that they do us harm is rapidly increasing. I'm Tegan Taylor and this is Quick Smart, the show that feeds you big ideas in bite-sized pieces. So where did these foods come from? Are they bad for us just because they're packed with sugar, fat and salt? Or is there something more at play here? And if they're so very terrible, what would a repackaging of our food landscape in a healthier direction look like? Someone who's been ripping open foil packages in search of an answer is Jen Lee. Hello, Jen. Hello, Tegan. Let us begin with a definition. What is an ultra-processed food? Okay. I think to explain that, I'm going to have to give three other definitions at the same time. Is that okay? Let's get into it, yes. Because the term ultra-processed food sits alongside some other definitions, okay? So basically, uh, this term came about in the late 2000s. It was developed by uh, a team of Brazilian researchers, and they basically broke food down into four categories based on their level of processing, not their nutrition profile. So not how much fat, sugar, whatever. So quite different from how we think about food. So the four categories, number one, minimally processed. So this is fruit, vegetables, simple meats, like a piece of steak. Then you've got processed culinary ingredients. This is stuff like flour, sugar, oil. Then you've got processed foods, which is simple cheeses, canned vegetables or something. Then you have ultra processed foods. You can define this in a number of different ways, but if you just think about it as you couldn't make it in your home kitchen and it's using a whole lot of ingredients, you know, emulsifiers, thickeners, all this stuff that you couldn't access at home. A classic example, if you take corn, so you take corn on the cob, that's minimally processed. Then you take canned corn, which is processed. Ultra processed is Dorito chips. You could not make that at home and it's using a whole range of flavors and enhancers. So yeah, that's a it's a good simple definition of what ultra processed is. And yeah, I've been looking at the history of ultra processed foods uh, for a recent episode of Rear Vision. So you've been looking at kind of the backstory of how we came to have them at all. Yeah. So I would say they're not actually recent additions. It, the recent addition is us labelling them as ultra-processed. I mean, obviously, we've been processing our food for thousands of years and it's been a key to growing our civilization, making food more reliable, much safer to eat. But the technology really took a massive leap forward during World War II and it was led by the United States. They were fighting a war, you know, far away and they had to figure out a way to feed their troops cheap, tasty food that was going to have a really long shelf life. So they just poured a huge amount of money into research and development. But what happened after that is the food companies had put so much money into this that they were like, 
we want to build on this and we want to convince the civilian that these kind of foods have a place in their diet. So that's, that's the real shift when they started to try and convince consumers. What I didn't realise was how much work had to go in to convince people that these foods were food. And, you know, if you think of in the 1950s, um, a lot of women are at home in charge of the kitchen, cooking most of the meals, and a huge amount of work had to go in to convince them that, you know, opening a can, pulling out a powdered something and mixing all together, that was actually cooking. But they did this, and it didn't happen straight away, but they did it by playing on the idea of, you know, you don't have enough time. This is modern. Your grandma had had to slave cooking meals, but you don't have to do that anymore. You get to just open a few boxes and put something, blah, blah, blah. But that took a really long time. And then, you know, as technology moves and the food gets a bit better and stuff like the microwave, which by the early 80s was pretty widespread. And so, again, you get this reshaping of what a meal looks like, um, how quickly it can be ready. And, yeah, that made a, a massive difference. So we obviously got fairly thoroughly convinced these foods are inescapable and unavoidable. But pretty soon we started to realise that there were health impacts from them. So we've seen changes in the prevalence and availability of processed food and that probably really kicked off in the 80s and that's when we start seeing wider health impacts of eating too many of these foods. I mean, we hear so much about obesity, the obesity epidemic, not to really get into that today. There's so many different health impacts that are linked to this And there's a lot of drivers that kind of feed into it, the way our cities are designed and that sort of thing. But the evidence is fairly clear now that ultra-processed foods specifically are bad for us in ways that we can't really fully account for by just the amount of fat or sugar that are in them. Yeah. I mean, one of the really important things about this term ultra-processed, it's enabled people to identify a set of products and then start to study them specifically. So it all started in the late 2000s. There was a Brazilian researcher who had been working in sort of public health and nutrition since the 1970s. And he was looking at household data and consumer spending, which had been gathered since the 1970s. And he could see that the Brazilian population were buying way less fat, sugar and oil, but they were actually getting a lot fatter, which doesn't seem to make sense. And then what he gathered was that they were still getting all of that. They were just getting it all from ultra-processed foods. And that's when he decided to start categorising food based on their level of processing. And then once he did that, people started doing research. And I can go into a particular study, which has really been massively impactful. I really want to talk about that study because I think one of the things that people don't really realise about nutrition research is that nutrition research, is it's actually really hard to measure what people put in their mouths. You're usually relying on self-reported data. You're often relying on people recalling what they might have eaten a week ago. And I can't remember what I put in my mouth an hour ago. But this study was so tightly controlled Mm. and they really found quite compelling evidence. Yeah, they did. So the, the guy who led it, Kevin Hall, When he heard about this way of categorising food and ignoring the nutrient profile, he was like, I'm not buying it. Like fat, sugar, salt, that matters. So he wanted to 
to test it. And so he set up a trial that went for a month. He got 20 healthy adults. No one had diabetes or any sort of particular health concerns. The first two weeks, they were served a minimally processed diet. And then halfway through, they would switch and they'd eat a ultra processed diet. And the really important thing here is they were matched for fat, sugar and salt. So the only distinguishing factor between these meals was the fact that one was ultra processed and one wasn't. And they were told, eat as much or as little as you like. At the end of this big trial, and obviously they lived in the facility, so they controlled every aspect of their eating. When the people were eating the ultra-processed diet, they would eat on average 500 calories more per day. And people didn't report liking one diet more than the other. When you talk to anyone about ultra-processed food, they will reference this study because it was huge. And to see to see a 500 calorie a day difference is ginormous. Yeah, that's so wild because it, it really showed that even if the fat, sugar and salt content, which is what you think is what's making these foods so palatable, tasty, delicious, <laughs> adjective of choice, it's not just that. So what do we think it is about ultra processed foods that is making them even snackier than already snacky things that are less processed? There's a range of theories, but there's two leading theories that Kevin is now trying to explore in a subsequent study, which is underway at the moment. And one of them is calories per gram. So ultra-processed food in the process of making them, a lot of water is stripped out. And so you'll get way more calories per gram. The classic example is take an apple and then take a dried apple. Same amount of apple, just one's a lot smaller and you could probably eat 10 of them, but no one's going to sit down and eat 10 apples. So yeah, less water in the products, more calories per gram. The other idea is that you get a combination of flavours and a threshold of flavours that you don't find in minimally processed food. So a higher level of sugar, salt and carbs together in the one product, which is what we love so much. So that's the other big idea, the combination and the threshold of flavours that you get, which just makes you want more and more. <laughs> yeah, there's so more issues that look, like, look down and suddenly there's the bottom of the bag. Yeah, yeah. For regulation in terms of actually helping people to identify this, if this is something that we know, independent of the nutrient profile is important when it comes to our health. Like we have the health star rating here that looks at sugar and salt, those sorts of things. But in Mexico, they have like a warning label, like what we have on cigarettes here, if something is ultra processed. Yeah. I mean, Brazil pioneered the ultra processed sort of term, but um, Mexico, Chile, Argentina, they're all doing a lot more when it comes to labelling. At least the hope with these labels is that you go into a shop and, you know, a big black mark or whatever, it's clearly identified if this product is ultra processed. And the idea that kids can easily identify it, even if you can't read, you know, I don't think it's been going long enough that they can say it's made a difference. But I think their total approach to it is quite different from ours. I feel like as a privileged, relatively well-off person having this conversation, I can just say to myself, well, I just won't buy this stuff. I'll just buy my own fruit and veggies and I'll just cook my own food in my nice kitchen that I have. Like I have, there's a lot of power in my, my individual hands to choose to opt out of this. But for some people, these foods are the backbone of their diet because they are cheap and shelf stable and they're easy to prepare. What kind of 
levers do we have that are being considered to make access to healthy food more affordable or more equitable? I mean, I would say we are a long way off any sort of extreme warning label like you see in in Mexico and other countries. And I put that question to someone who's really advocating for change in this space. And he said, yeah, I mean, that is the crucial point. It's very easy for me to say sugar tax, blah, blah, blah. But I think his point is that the fundamental system is wrong. We've got a system where these foods are too cheap. I don't think there's an easy fix on that. I really don't because it's kind of like upending the whole food system. Yeah, so I suppose companies who are making profitable products probably aren't going to just stop. So where where are we headed here? Well, I think if you look at the South American countries, one of the reasons why they're pushing so hard on this is they know they don't have a public health system that's going to manage the burden of the diabetes, the chronic heart disease, all of that kind of stuff. And that's how they've managed to really make some change because they're not going to be able to cope with the burden of, of health, really. The problem with this stuff is it's chronic. The problems don't turn up straight away. You know, when you look at some early wacky food processing in the turn of the 20th century where someone adds formaldehyde to milk to make it last longer, all that crazy stuff, it had an immediate terrible health effect. So it was like, okay, well, we're going to have to regulate and stop this. But with ultra processed foods, it takes a long, long time. And my reaction might be different to yours. So it's just one of those chronic health things that we're able to kick the can down the road. I mean, just because we have a public health system doesn't mean we should have to pay for uh, these chronic diseases long term. Um, hopefully we, we figure out a solution before then. Yeah, exactly. Jen, thanks so much. My pleasure. QuickSmart is made on the lands of the Jagera and Turrbal and Gadigal people. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.